watching in 1972 as 11 Israeli athletes were murdered at the Munich Olympics. This is the story of what podcasted next. Wait, what? Is that is that the tagline? That's the tagline for the movie. Great tagline. <laughs> wow, what a somber beginning. Yeah, I mean, this... Uh, what, you, hey, everybody, I'm hi, David Sims. Uh, my name's Griffin Newman. All right, all right. This we, is we a podcast it. called Blank Check with Griffin and David. Uh, Yeah. Uh, this is a, a show. Uh, we're hashtag the two friends. That's very important. I almost forgot that. Uh, we're two friends. We host a podcast together. That's our competitive advantage. <laughs> it's unique. Uh, yeah, that's that's the that's the secret we crack. Yes, I'm looking at quotes from Munich. That's now. proprietary. But um, we talk about movies on the show. We like directors and filmographies, and looking at the context of what happens when someone has a massive success. Mm. Early on, they become a brand, and it's, they get a series of blank checks. Yeah, it's funny that you're doing this for Spielberg, because it's not really the premise of the Spielberg podcast. No. <laughs> sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. Yeah. And sometimes you, you save up enough studio, checks that you right. buy a studio. You found a studio with two other really rich guys, and then you just make whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. Um. This yeah. is this is a main series about Stevie Spielberg. Yeah. It's called Pod Me If You Cast. Right. And it's about uh, Spielberg in the DreamWorks years. And this is kind of this is kind of a midpoint. This is kind of a fulcrum film. I guess so. It's a fulcrum film. I'd say maybe this is like the halfway point of our miniseries. Of our miniseries, it, it probably is. I'm not cracking yeah, the hard yeah, no, math no, no. on You're, this. Yeah, it's about right. there. I think it's about there. And this mm-hmm. is an interesting one because uh, the the film we're talking about today is Munich. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a two hour forty five minute laugh riot. It's long. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's it's serious political Spielberg. One of the modes he goes into, it's sure, but it's, Spielberg, which is it's the beginning of uh, right. of that new genre, right? Um, but the other thing with this film was this was part of this phenomenon that we keep on talking about when Spielberg tried to do a two for a year. Yeah, well, three and two. I call it a three and two, three and two. What do you? Why do you call it a three? Because it's you know, uh, Lost World, Amistad, Saving Private Ryan, three, three. Three movies in two years, and then oh, interesting. AI, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, and then this time it's Terminal War of the Worlds, Munich. Three and two. Interesting. Three and two. Yeah, yeah. I just think he keeps on gunning for this one specific year thing, which is like, within silly one year. And serious. Can right? I make a huge blockbuster and a huge Oscar film? And this film is paired up with War of the Worlds in its year, mm-hmm. and they're interesting because both films are closer to the middle. Yeah, they're both very, very grim. Right, they're both very, very grim. Yeah. And Munich is is pretty violent and actiony, not in like a True. cathartic popcorny no, way, no, but I mean. for an Oscar movie. And War of the Worlds was pretty grim and bleak for a popcorn movie. Yeah, not much action, mostly just yeah. people turning into clouds of dust. And War of the Worlds made a lot of money, yeah. but mixed response and wasn't the number one movie of the year. Yeah. And this movie got a bunch of Oscar nominations, but didn't win any. And was it's one of his least seen films. Yeah. yeah. Um. But it, but it's an interesting film. We have a very exciting guest on the show. Today You're to supposed talk to talk about. before we introduce you, or interrupt us, or make some annoying uh, comment. I thought you'd laugh. yell at me. Yeah, right. no, you exactly. Like, I'm I'm too I'm I'm a very good boy. This is the most <laughs> polite guest we've ever had on the show. Perhaps. <laughs> Usually people are jumping in. Their hot takes. Their cold takes. The redditors are going to make a politeness ranking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he'll be number one. Yeah. Uh, you know him from the AV Club. Back in the day. Back in the day, when the two of you were bosom buddies. 
Yeah. We still are. Yeah, we are. Yeah. We're we're still we're still really not not as tight as you think, but really good friends. I would say that we are. Hey, Hashtag really good friends. Let's make it clear. I'm not trying to argue that David and I are best friends and that there isn't room for other friends. It's just an empirical <laughs> fact that we are the two friends. Right. I'm not saying we're better friends than anyone else. I'm not saying our friendship is better well, than anyone else's friends. friendship. We are friends and there are two of us. Yep. That's a fact. Yep. <laughs> you can't argue with it. Yeah. And we're the only ones. Um, and the two of you might still be bosom <laughs> okay, buddies in spirit, but you used to be suckling at the same bosom. We did. Is that what bosom buddies refers to? Is it's like... I think I think so. I, I believe that if you think of the AV club as a giant wolf, yeah, right. We right. once both had separate wolf teats. Right. Yeah. We were like Romulus and, and Remus. Now we have different wolves. That's true. And your yeah. new wolf is is Vox. Is Vox. 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 Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's less of a wolf, and now it's a Vox. Well, oh, it doesn't. I was gonna make a fox joke. I don't know what. It yeah. Uh, remember how at the end of every episode of Bosom Buddies, Peter Scolari and Tom Hanks would like recount what happened in their day while sucking at the breast of a wolf. Yes, of course they do. Uh, Todd Vanderwolf is our guest today. <laughs> made it one of the biggest hits of the 80s. Made it one of the biggest hits. Uh, Todd, uh, thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to be Hi, here. Hi, Todd. I've so been on your podcast many times. You have, you have. You're, is it dormant? I suppose it's dormant. It's podcast. dormant, yeah. I mean, we Libby and I keep thinking we're going to relaunch it. It's called TV on the Internet. Mm-hmm. It's still on the Internet, and you can still find it. And it's still about TV. Yeah, it's, it's, it's still about TV. Uh, but, but yeah, it's dormant now because Libby works for a print publication. And so they're not, they're, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. They're, they're all, they're weird about the internet. Right, so, right, yeah. yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Well, you're here to talk about movies. I am. Here and to talk about movies. you're in town. I am. You're from, you're from the city of angels. Yes. Uh, La La Land, which yeah. at this point is probably one best picture. This episode won't post this, for a long time. At this probably. point, everybody's fucking sick of that There's movie. been a backlash. Yeah. There's been a oh, backlash to the backlash. Can we do this actually? Oh, you want to? You, you I'm, I'm going to say Moonlight. This will probably post yeah. in like March. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. I'm going to say Moonlight. You say La La Land, and let's not oh, okay, talk about right. it for the rest of the episode. But let's just call our, our pick our bets. You're, right you're now. calling a shot. You're saying I'm calling Moonlight's a shot. Gonna... I'm saying Moonlight. You're saying La La Land. Todd, what do you I'll, think? I'll say La La Land as well. I I, I don't think Moonlight has the juice. I no. just don't. I See, mean, we we like the movie. Mm-hmm. To be clear, yeah. But, uh, I, I'm once again. I mean, look. I I'm on the record as uh, having Moonlight as my movie of the year. I I just I sense a surge coming in like January. Well. But right now we're right, recording in December. This is going to look hot. That's what I'm saying. That's yeah, why yeah. I want to put the chips on <laughs> Moonlight right now. Because I'm sensing a, a January, February But this surge. is very low stakes because like. Who fucking cares? Yeah, like in March people will just be like, oh, well, he was wrong. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Whatever. <laughs> or they might be like, you know, we must join the resistance. Yeah. Like, you know, Oscars don't matter. Any- Who cares what happened to the last Oscars? Uh, anyway, sorry. I mean, um, if I was really courageous, I don't need to joke about whatever horrible shit might be happening in the future. If I was really courageous, I'd I'd put my bet on a movie that no one's talking about now. Where if it loses or doesn't even get nominated, then it'll look like it was just a joke. And if it wins, I look like the single smartest man in exactly. history. Exactly, it's the old uh, Shakespearean love trick you pulled. Right. Yeah. Anyway. And for that reason, I'm predicting that Collateral Beauty takes home seven Academy Awards. <laughs> yeah, but all technical. You all technical. <laughs> the film is a work of technical precision. <laughs> all right. So, Todd. Yes. We've known each other. A very long time. Yes, yes. And uh, we met as Oscar prognosticators actually way back in the day on the message boards. On yes. the message on the on board. The I've board. heard of these fabled boards. Yeah, many we a used time. we used to ride the ride the boards. Yeah, yeah. Tread the boards. Mount, yeah, yeah, tread the boards. Tread the boards. The boards. Tread the boards yeah. And uh, I remember 2005. What was the hot movie of two? What did, who? What beat Munich? I don't even crash. remember. Crash. Crash. Lost a crash. Brokeback Mountain was was the know, hot movie. Was the one to win and crash. What a weird Oscar race that was. Kind of a muted Oscar race. Now that I think about it, it was. I recall the first year in a long time that no none of the movies had scored more than a hundred hundred mil. Yeah, and that was like considered a big, like 
shocker. Well, Brokeback was it, the highest grossing, and it did eighty five, right? Yeah, because yeah, yeah, you had yeah, you had some sleepers in there. You know, you had yeah. like Crash. Obviously, was a summer movie. Yeah, and, like they had sort of built a little. You know, Good Night and Good Luck, Capote. These like very, very glum movies. It was uh, it was a dour year. Yeah, very washed out. I mean, we, it was it was the year of Katrina. It was the year right. of like the post Bush. Like yeah. Yeah, 2005. So we were in the thick of it. Um, but uh, what I remembered, yeah, is that Todd loved Munich. I love time. Me. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, when the word Munich bubbled into my brain and Todd bubbled into my brain for our podcast, mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, Todd's got to talk yeah. about Munich." Well, well, here's what I remember about the Munich thing because I wasn't, uh, yeah, I might, have been, I might have been lurking those boards. I was certainly checking Oscar <laughs> sites all the time. Oh, I yeah? was, I was deep in it. Um, I, I remember there was a narrative because both. War of the Worlds and Munich got pushed in production very quickly. Right. Um, and Munich was like, he had been thinking about making it for a while, and then suddenly it was like, he's making it, it's a three-month schedule, they're shooting it in the summer, it's coming out in the fall. Yeah, like, it, it was edited very People fast. almost yeah. couldn't believe that it would actually make it out, because it yeah. seemed like, yeah, it seemed it, so hard to turn it around. It got screened very late. I think they started production in, like, June. It was, like, kind crazy. of crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that gave it this kind of, like, mystery box heat. Of like Spielberg's got this burning passion. Sure, and of course he's making a historical true story movie. Like surely that'll be a big deal. And right? this has been like his Oscar zone before. And I remember um, he had a cover story of Time magazine. Uh-huh. And I forget what the headline was, but it was like, you know, Steven's back. You know, Steven yeah. Spielberg's secret important film or whatever it was. And the narrative I kept on seeing repeated in the press leading up to the release of the movie was like, yeah, I know Steven Spielberg has two best director trophies, but he wants three. <laughs> they kept on saying, like, yes, he's the most celebrated and successful director of his generation, but Howard Hawks had four. You know, like, it was, like, that kind of thing, which was the least sympathetic narrative of all time. Right. But I remember people being like, he's going to drop this movie, it's going to come out late, and it's just going to fucking sweep. Because Brokeback at that point was, like, the one to beat. But you so could people already... were like, oh, it's so sad. It's, you know, like, are, is the Oscars, are they ready for a gay movie? Right? Which like they, were they all... ultimately proved they weren't. <laughs> right? And Crash, Crash at the time was like, oh, I guess it's going to get nominated. It has its fans. Right. But it didn't seem like it had the juice to win. I mean, when you think about Todd, Crash, yeah. Todd. And when Crash. you think about Todd, Crash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it is crazy that Crash Bandicoot's also in the it, studio today. It came today. out to bad reviews. Crash came out to Crash came out to very mediocre reviews. Yeah. There were some people. I mean, Roger Ebert loved it. Yes, and that, he did. That and he stumped for it the whole it. time. It's true. And um, but New York Times and LA Times both yeah they both it, like right? trash and Variety and Hollywood they trash Porter, Crash yeah. But it was a crash, crash. sort of a surprise hit and yes. like it was like a it's one of those LA things where people yeah. get very excited about like here we Ooh. here we are on screen. It's very weird. Yeah. But, well, it's that thing of like, oh my God, this movie speaks to what we're going through as a nation. Yeah. It's like, no, this movie speaks to what you're going through as a voting member of the <laughs> as Academy. a Hollywood executive. Yeah. yeah. Being asked to cast people in movies. Right. Yeah, it was a movie. It was as a, Tony Danza. It was yeah. a movie about racism made to assuage rich white people that yes. they weren't that racist. And like, right. and it which is the Academy. Didn't Spanglish come out the same year? Year before. 2004. 2004. It just, there's a lot of real white guilt movies like yeah. written by like, established Hollywood people who were obviously like 
wanted to wrestle with issues. Yeah. But like he could not find the right track, you know, not, not find the right way to do it and probably shouldn't have been the people well, doing it in the first place. But, but I think, yeah, post 9-11 in the middle of two wars, I think there was a lot of like looking in the mirror and yeah, being yeah. like, are we the fucking bad guys? Yeah, But sure. ultimately going like, nah, not really, right? <laughs> like all those movies kind of went like, eh, I don't know. And Munich's <laughs> interesting because Munich really is like wrestling with that and has no need to answer. Well, Munich's actually good. Right, right. right. Uh, as opposed to the other movies. Cry, I, mean, yeah. I mean, this is kind of the start of a really like dark period of Oscar Best Picture winners. Like, mm-hmm. like I mean, Crash is not an especially dark winner, but you get Departed. You've got No Country for Old Men. Crash is pretty dark. You've got you've got Hurt Locker in there. Yep. So it's like this. It's this list of movies that are like you know um, we've abandoned the American ideal. Well, I guess we might as well die. And it it, is even Slumdog yeah. Millionaire, which is the like feel good winner of 08, like that's that's a that's a dark movie, yeah. you know. Yeah, and then The Artist, which is a feel good movie, is also a fucking silent film. Like yeah. we have this run where for like a number of years, none of the best picture winners are traditional best picture movies. Mm-hmm. Sure. They're either a traditional best picture kind of so narrative in think, very unconventional trappings. When do you think it swings back around? Well, King's Speech in twenty ten, I think, is the outlier. Sure, because that that's is a, a classic best picture movie. That could have won in nineteen fifty. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then I think it swings back. I don't think it's swung back because the next, then you've got Birdman and Spotlight. I think it's still like I think Argo's kind of a classic Best Picture winner. Twelve Years a Slave. No, 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 yeah. no. It's the thing. Like <laughs> no, they've made it's some wild choices. They yeah. made some wild choices. La, Even, uh, assuming La La Land wins, it will be. But if Moonlight yes. wins, and yeah. you're the genius, then... and I'm the genius, <laughs> or Collateral <laughs> Beauty. <laughs> yeah, you're hedging, but with Collateral. I'm hedging beauty. my bets. Yeah. Um, I love Oscar talk, guys. I don't know if it's, it is funny though that we're because yeah, Munich. I feel like Todd, correct me if I'm wrong. That the, the re- reception of Munich was so muted and confused, all over the place. Yeah, yeah. All, so all over the place uh, that it was almost surprising when it did eventually. It did get yeah. some Oscar. It got yeah. nominated for picture, director, screenplay, yeah. score. Everybody you know. thought it was going. Everybody thought Spielberg would get nominated, but the movie would get edged out by Walk the Line. Yes, and Walk right. the Line was happen. the big right. and like. You know, it didn't get a lot of precursor, you know, the no. Golden Globe shit, you know, like, so, uh, yeah, so. It was, it was that weird arc of, oh, it's it's going to be the surprise sweep of mm-hmm. the whole season. Then people saw it and they were like, I don't know what the fuck this they is. They were like, forget it. Then now. they assumed it wasn't like, a contender. Too weird. Yeah. Then it got a bunch of major nominations, didn't win any, and it just kind of like, well, the the prize was being nominated. Like, it, like yeah. no one ever viewed it. I think it was probably the least likely to win in the eyes of most people of the five films. Yes. Yeah, although people did start beating some drum that was like oh you know Jews like it is it is weird how sometimes people will just be like you know what when we're talking about the Oscars we can just sort of say out loud that they like Jewish things like you know yeah. and they can be it can get a little uncomfortable <laughs> but no but but this movie struggled with the perception that it was anti Israel yes as well yeah uh which is uh also kind of crazy and and sort of a less prominent but also from the what was the American left at the time, which mm-hmm. was like very small, but sort of the the counter criticism of it was too anti-Palestinian. Of course, like, right, right. Which is, you, yeah. I mean, as they say, that's a good thing, right? Yeah. When you're getting criticized from all sides, I don't know. In yeah, this I movie's case, a, I think. Yeah. I think. I think. I think so. Too. You know, this is a thing I like in movies, which is uh, doesn't try to provide answers, try to ask you questions. It's like a fucking Rorschach test movie in a lot of ways. You know, the characters are. I, I remember. I think it was Manolo's Argus. It might have been in Ariel Scott. But the New York Times review of Munich when it came out, which was very positive, and was one of the more positive ones I remember reading at the immediate release. I'm finding it. The headline, I think, was something like, and you're probably going to now find it. I have it right here. Correct it. You want me to say it? 
I think it's uh, an action movie about the importance of talking. An action film about the need to talk. Yeah. It was wow. Darges. Yeah, which I, uh, I had not seen this movie until last night. I somehow didn't see it at the time. Mm-hmm. But for years, for the last 10, 11 years, I kept that in mind. And watching this, it really kind of is the best description I've heard of the movie. That's what it is. It's this action movie that has no visceral pleasures to it. Sure, no. Because it's a bunch of people in a very conflicted situation. But it's still, Spielberg still makes that yeah. action pop. That's true. Sure. That's the fun of him. Sure. You know, he, he gets you into it and you're like, oh, this is, a, and then you immediately you're like, oh my God, though. Like, <laughs> why am I enjoying this? Well, right? and it's, like, it's that adage of like, you know, all war films are pro war films. Like violence translates well to cinema. Oh, sure, sure. You know, it always kind of glorifies yeah. it to a degree because it's kinetic. Um, and, but, but I think this movie works so hard to frame every action sequence, whether it's kind of a pot boiler tension sequence or sure, an exciting or cathartic yeah. or whatever it is. Um, it, it's so conflicted with everything it's doing. I think it humanizes almost every single character you meet in the entire film, you know? Yeah. Even the characters who are speaking a foreign language without subtitles, you get a real strong sense of, like, that Greek guy in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, like, this is a real person. You mm-hmm. know, No one's just, like, collateral damage in this movie. Um and it yeah it is it's a collateral movie about, beauty though collateral beauty though uh it is a movie about like uh, uh conversations uh and it reminds me a lot of uh the conversation um, interesting I, I think I think stylistically I I had not watched it since it came out on is that DVD right yeah oh, okay, okay yeah I, so I saw it in theaters it was my favorite movie of that year and then I saw it on DVD and I, I put it aside because it's you know when are you going to make two hours and 44 <laughs> minutes I almost bought it and I was like I sh- <laughs> probably not going to rewatch it even if I buy sometimes it sometimes you're just in the mood for I a nice rented it. a nice Thursday Munich <laughs> and all, like all but all of the scenes I remembered were like quiet quiet conversations like yeah. the conversation in the safe house with the uh, Palestinian yes guy. absolutely and the conversation with uh, Papa like I, I remembered those yeah. scenes I did not necessarily remember the visceral action sequences yeah. which are there and are great but I remembered. I remembered one of the. Any, I, I remembered the, and I forgot how the um, hostage. You know how the the recreation of the Munich massacre is mm-hmm. is done, and I remembered that very viscerally. And then when, in the movie when it starts and it, you only see a second of it at the start, you know, mm-hmm. you only. I was like, oh, maybe did I like? I forgot that it's the dribs and drabs. And then of yeah. course I forgot. I remembered the sex scene. <laughs> Everybody yeah. remembers, and that. I remember the yeah. talk about the sex scene. That was the other thing. This movie. This movie has a a very in, intense. Strangely shot. I don't, we can talk about the sex scene later. It's also kind of like the only full sex scene of his entire career. It's true. Spielberg doesn't shoot a lot of sex. Right. That's, I was like running through my head and I was like, what's another Spielberg movie? With like a, an actually intimately shot sex scene. I don't know. And it's got two, essentially. Yeah. And then you also have the whole thing with uh, Marie-José Crows, which is just like even nudity you don't usually sure. see in Spielberg movies. Certainly not in a sexualized context. And it's got Kieran Hinz's dick. You see Kieran Hinz's shadowy penis. We do. <laughs> I mean, that is a thing you see. Got to talk about it. You see a shadow cast <laughs> tallywhacker of Kieran. <laughs> no, but uh, you're. I, I just feel like the, the sex scene's right at the end. A lot of people came out and they were like, "I don't know. It has this crazy sex scene that's really bad." Like, and that suddenly became like uh, the Munich problem. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I tweeted about rewatching it, and like half the tweets really? were, "What about that sex scene?" You know, it's. It, it's such a weird, crazy notion. But I think that the reason Spielberg never has sex scenes is because when Spielberg has sex, he's imagining like a perfectly framed and shot action sequence. Like that's, yeah. that's, that's his experience. And Wide, close. <laughs> what, yeah, you know, yeah, for sure. I'm trying to, there must be a sex scene in this movie. 
I mean, I was trying to think of one other one, you know? Yeah, and then when I was trying to even just think of, like, what are other Spielberg movies with nudity, it's, like, Amistad and Schindler's List. Like, he only shows nudity when it's in, like, service of, like, yeah. human atrocities, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I understand, you know, like, the biggest nude scene Catch in this me movie. if you can. That must have a sex scene in it. Doesn't I it? feel like it has scenes where they're, like, it jumping on beds. Scenes. It has, like, underwear. I remember scenes. that movie, and uh, we will have rewatched it by right, the time right. this episode comes out, but we're recording out of order. I remember that movie cutting away before the sex ever happens right, yeah. or showing people in bed right after sex who are mostly yeah, clothed. You know what? So Spielberg's a bit of a prude, but hey, yeah. he shot that, a sex scene. That was one of the reasons Sweat why goes everywhere. everyone was so surprised when he gave the, the palm d'or to uh, Blue is the Warmest Color. Yeah, and he was like, and I loved it. He, he was, was like, like very, yeah. yeah this movie's great. Yeah. Um, Good for him. I but, mean, you're yeah. forgetting the big sex scene in Lincoln. Like, when he's just <laughs> oh, like, that is true. Just walking around naked. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's got the stovepipe out over. Yeah, okay, all right. Look, look, <laughs> Munich, very serious film. Yeah, War Horse too has a lot of sex. <laughs> um, Munich. Yeah. So it's about uh, the 1972 Munich Olympics. Right, as I covered in my introduction to this podcast. <laughs> right, and uh, and the the Black September hostage situation that went wrong, and oh, everyone died. You know, uh, Palestinian. Uh, terrorist organization took hostages. I mean, Jesus Christ. So do I have to go through this? Uh, bad, bad, bad scene. A real. It was a bad time. A real bad time. A bad, one day in September, the Kevin McDonald documentary, which yeah. is very good yeah. and very, very intense, um, has an interview with one of the Black September survivors. One of the, I think the only surviving member of the attack, maybe. Uh, it's a good movie. If you guys ever want to check it out. Whatever happened to Kevin McDonald? Uh, need to do a uh, like a YA movie with Saoirse Ronan that barely got released. He's made a lot. Yeah, he did. He's made a lot of weird feature films since he switched. He had over a that, so. yeah, very strange because he made like Last King of Scotland, yes. right? But then, uh, yeah, he's made a lot. Holy yeah, cow! He keeps working. State of Play. Remember that? Oh, right. Yeah. Remember and uh, the Eagle. Yeah. That's what people need. Oh, the like Channing a, Tatum. Yeah, like Channing Tatum Roman caper. <laughs> Uh, he made something called Marley. I was a Bob Marley documentary. Right. Okay. How I Live Now. That's, that's, that's the Sir Ronan one. one. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and apparently he worked on that James Franco time travel uh, TV show. Oh, he directed Eleven. Oh, that's right. He did do that. Yeah. yeah. So you guys, you guys are blushing right now. This is a superstar. <laughs> yeah, uh, this guy's killing. Yeah. What a weird. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, he was in that. He made that submarine movie with Jude Law that like didn't come out. In America. Oh, that's the other Black Gold. Black Sea. Or Black Sea. Yeah. yeah. All right. I don't know why we're talking about Kevin McDonald. I mean, I know why, but he's our next subject. So, but I mean, the so, least listened to miniseries in history. So, but we, yeah, yeah, seriously. So we start with a brief recreation of the beginning of that hostage situation. We cut to the biggest star in the movie. You know her name. Tell me your name. Ayad Zora. No, what the fuck's her name? Who plays Gold in My Ear? What's the Lynn Cohen? Oh, Lynn Cohen. Lynn Cohen. She's Gold in My Ear, Prime Minister of Israel. Yeah, she's really good in this. She's great. It's one yeah. fantastic scene. Yeah. And uh, she's like, we gotta, you know, how are we gonna respond to this essentially? Because what happened was quickly the a lot of the surviving Black September who were arrested members got released because of another hostage situation, the Lufthansa crisis. If you guys know. Yeah. So like everyone was mad, and you know, so they, yeah. How do we, how do we address this as Israel, as Jews, as like people under attack? Um, what are we gonna do? Go, going back one step, sure. I do think it's interesting that in the opening recreation, a lot of it is retold through news broadcasts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh and yeah, yeah. Just, right. There's that as the score is right. playing and stuff. Yeah. Not just archival footage, but watching a lot of 
different people across the world watching the mm-hmm. story be covered by different anchors and different outlets. Right, and there was this thing where, like, the anchor, briefly all the reporters thought that it was resolved, what, like, that the hostages were okay and right. that these terrorists were dead, and then they realized, like, no, they're all gone. There's that, is it? Howard Cosell? Who the hell is it who announced yeah, I think it's Howard it's, Cosell. Yeah, because was, he was there for the Olympics. Right. That's and why. And he says they're all gone, and it's, I mean. And it feels oh, weird Jim coming McKay, out of Jim mouth. McKay says, Jim McKay says they're all, we're all gone. It, it's, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but Crazy. I, it's, it's really interesting. seventy two. Yeah, bizarre footage. Yeah. But I also think it immediately frames, you know, uh, people would expect, I think, especially out of Steven Spielberg making a movie out of this subject matter, that he would give you a nice tidy way to interpret everything that happened. Sure, right. You know, like, here's how you should view it. And especially when it's someone who has been uh, such a big supporter of Israel throughout his life, right? Sure, I I mean, yeah. I mean, we're we're watching all these different people watch the story be covered in different ways, and it kind of sets you up to think, like, okay, we're going to be given the news, the straight facts, that sort of way. And then from then on out, the movie is on the ground floor with people who don't really know what the fuck they're doing. And yeah, are wrestling absolutely. with it. And we don't really deal with the media again after the introduction. No, and I also like that we're focused on one team of this operation, yeah. you know, that they organized to, you know, uh, Operation, what's it called? A uh, Sword of Vengeance or something yeah. crazy like that. A uh, Wrath of God, yeah. It's a very focused movie. I mean, they're not trying to cover the entirety. Right, and then only at the end of the movie do we realize, like, right, this was not, like, the whole operation. Right. This is just one team of essentially assassins or, you know, like, yeah. spies. Like Toy guess. makers. <laughs> Toy makers, Danish uh, uh, antiquity. Uh, uh, pro, uh, uh, what's the word for uh, when you decide how much money something costs? Appraisers. Appraisers. Appraisers yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No. Just one team that is right. Is Kieran killing. Hines' shadowy penis. It's just a team, an oddball <laughs> team of. And the man attached to it as well. He came along with. Oh it. right, yeah, he's right. in it. I forgot about it. that. I forgot that he's in he's it. He's so good. He's so good. Um, but but come on, guys, Lynn Cohen, give it up for Lynn Cohen. <laughs> yeah, great right? performance. Great performance. I do. I do remember that when people first started seeing this, I think it was like David Poland was like, "Oh, Lynn Cohen, there's your Oscar winner. Watch <laughs> out, yeah, <laughs> Lynn." Co- if Lynn Cohen was in. <clears throat> 25% of this movie giving that performance like sure yeah sure let's talk about it it's, it's a very like, strange call it's yeah. just the one scene can I, I mean, can, I throw, scene, can I throw some real inside baseball for one second yeah sure if I were a rival studio and there was like you know a, a front runner who I felt stood in the way of, of my contender mm-hmm. I would hire David Poland to say that they were going to win <laughs> that's the easiest way to knock someone out of the running is for Dave Poland to go they're gonna win <laughs> that's good thank you yeah. Inside baseball, done. David Poland, though. Thanks. David shout Poland, out, though. Shout out to Poland. Shout out to Poland. Oh, okay. All right. I already told Todd this. I yeah. forgot to tell you this last week. And again, this is months after the incident. Dave, uh, Jeff Wells emailed me. What? Isn't that crazy? This is the most Okay, insight. so context for our, our listeners. Uh, Jeff Wells is uh, a troll who lives under a bridge on the internet <laughs> and, and pokes people with a stick and uh, just spouts lunacy. He's done many terrible things, but... Uh, by far the weirdest is when he thought he had reserved a hotel room with a hat. Yeah. And you can go and find that online <laughs> if you search for it. Do you not know this story? Wait, he thought the hotel room came with a hat? or Okay, no. I, I got to tell this for one second because this is the best story of all time. And even <laughs> if you I don't know who the, the fuck email. we're talking about, this story is objectively funny. He he looks like uh, uh, he he looks like Christopher Walken cosplaying as a vampire, right? Oh, if, I've seen him in real life. He looks like he looks like an aging Penny Marshall. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> he's a misanthrope. He's a misogynist. Yeah, mm. Mm, yeah uh, he, he 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 thinks like we all should be tough, tough guys, yeah. right? Right, right. He's very into like masculinity, and uh, he's he's the Zen samurai warrior poet. Isn't that his thing? He always throws I out. Think so yeah, the emotionally vivid, <laughs> right? So he and he does shit like he'll like you know have a tinfoil wrapped piece of cake that he'll bring to a restaurant and then he'll ask if they can serve him a plate so he can eat the dessert he brought from home and then get angry when they tell him he can't bring his own dessert into a fancy restaurant. Right. But the story was he was at Sundance where rooms fill up like super quickly. Far in advance, people have to book their rooms at Sundance because it's not a huge city and the, and the desirable yes, hotels that are yeah, close yeah. to where the theaters are, hard to come by. He had a hotel room and when he left and he checked out, he put his cowboy hat on the desk, on the <laughs> counter, and said, I'll be back for this next year. Oh, and he thought that was enough? A year later, he arrives at Sundance and goes, Jeff Wells checking in, and they go, you don't have a room booked. <laughs> and he Did goes online. Yeah, they, I, I mean, I think they had to dig through it. They went, we don't, that was, that was the further insult, was he went, well, what about my hand? They went, what fucking hand? <laughs> but he, he went online, he went, if a man leaves a hat on a counter, what it is very this clear. Is like Deadwood? Like that's, yes, that's the problem with Jeff Wells is he thinks he's living in Deadwood. He thinks it's constantly a last stand for masculinity and, and his small movements say volumes, speak volumes. <laughs> um, uh, but he's a horrible person. Yeah, he's bad. Anyway, he got mad at me because I, I mentioned Casey Affleck's legal issues yes. he got a, mad at you in an that? Oscar prediction piece. Just brought up the fact that, you know, this has been coming up. That it's a uh, fact and it's a case that's been public for fucking yeah, five or know, six years. He was uh, you know, sued for sexual, sexual harassment. harassment. He settled out of court. On this and and yeah. I said something like that that could come back to, uh, you know, haunt him in the Oscar race or something like that. Anyway, yeah, he, he said that I was um, falsely equating his boorish behavior with Nate Parker. How dare I, you know? No. And, uh, yeah. And he's the the thing that you know, Affleck's thing, direct quote, was nothing compared to the Parker thing or the Polanski thing, tedious and unwelcome behavior that he paid to settle. Yeah, nice not use of the word thing. Much less match the agonies and upheavals associated with Parker. This is my way of addressing it, Todd, because I asked you what to do, and you were like, "Don't email back." Yeah, and I was don't, like, don't, don't email back. <laughs> also, uh, you know what? Maybe let's not sit around and rank which sexual Indeed, assaults yes. are worst. <laughs> Or better than others. I'm um, just I'm just realizing that sometime in March I'm gonna get a tweet that's like an aging Penny Marshall. I'm gonna be like, what the fuck is that? He does listen to this show, and he's gonna be our guest on the Tintin episode. Um, he also once, and I think more than once, but one time very publicly, uh, uh, emailed uh, James Mangold, director of Three Ten to Yuma, yes, because yeah. there was a scene where uh, actress Vanessa Shaw was naked but covered, and he believed that there must be on-set stills of her fully disrobed yeah. and asked her to just, you know, pass along the stills, uh, which is uh, a thing that maniacs do. And somehow didn't, like, kill his career. I mean, he's well, self-employed. Well, but... it is his career, yeah, exactly, right. right. He has such an odd career. But, like, he's, I don't understand how, like, he gets money. access, he gets yes. money, like, he gets, he's, like, he apparently lives a jet-setting life, so. I, I love that we're going this deep in the right. Jeff Wells in the middle. Right. That's stuff. enough. Sorry, I'm sorry that I brought it up, and uh, we can cut it if we go too long here. But uh, what I just had to tell you. Oh, but that's important for our listeners to know that um, a cowboy hat is not a binding reservation. Right. Not at a restaurant. Not at a hotel. Also comes up in Munich. Comes up in Munich. It does. I mean, emotionally vivid cowboy hat. They they trace the cowboy hat back to yeah. them. That's how they know. So, Eric Bana. Yes. yes. The actor Eric Bana, and we. I was you know I was looking through Eric Bana. What a like. Rapid rise it's and fall. Weird. 
And I got no beef with Eric Bana. I think he's excellent in this movie. I don't know if you guys. I, agree. I think he's a very good actor. I agree. Yeah. Um, but it is funny how like this is the this is it. This is the end of Eric Bana as a movie. This was star. like third strike. You know, you're you're at bat. We're giving you three to be a leading man, and it was like Hulk. Hulk in 03. People and hate that movie. Troy in 04. Yeah. Right, which did really well, but people did well, but didn't like it really. Not not, not rem- well remembered, I guess. And he certainly didn't really stick in that. Although I'd say he's pretty good in it. I, I think mean, he's pretty good in Hulk, too. I think yeah. he's pretty much he's, good. He's, he's good in, in Hulk. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Hulk's a weird movie. Uh, a masterpiece, I think. Sure, the word. exactly. Yeah. And then Munich. And then, yeah, after that, like, Lucky You, two years later. <laughs> Uh, the other Berlin girl, which I like Eric Bana, but he's horrible in that movie. Yeah, I can imagine. And the, he's the villain in Star Trek. Oh, well, remember Eric Bana? Like, and then funny people that same year it was like, oh, maybe and he's the a time traveler's now. wife, yeah. right? Yeah. And then, and you know, now he's just kind of floating, and he's not right. gone. No, he was in the finest hours. He was and he's pretty good there. He's, and he's okay. and Eric Bana. Not, yeah. not and bad. Bana. Yeah. Uh, but although he has like a Texan accent or something. And yeah, he's sort of it's struggling terrible. With it. yeah. yeah. Everyone's accents in that movie are real, uh, yeah. real fun. Well, it is a weird arc because he was an Australian comedy star. Yeah, he was in like The Castle and he had like right. a sketch show. Yeah, he did Australia. like sketch TV yeah. and sitcoms, you know, yeah. and he was really funny, but he was this conventionally good looking guy. And mm-hmm. he usually was funny upending that, you know? Yeah. He kind of was doing like a twist on straight man stuff. Sure. Then he does Chopper, where it's he Chopper, plays his big breakout. Right, Australia's a... most notorious he serial plays killer Australia's who killed three people. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I remember my friend, Sam Rogal, past guest on this show, always said, "Like that shows you what Australia's like." <laughs> this is the worst criminal we had: three murders. <laughs> um, and uh, and he's like a live wire in that movie. He gained yeah. a bunch of weight. Yeah, looks great. And it's he plays movie. this very charismatic, very terrifying person. It's weird that then everyone shifted to going, oh, this is a conventional leading man. Well, but no, but you got to remember, then he's in Black Hawk Down, which he's fantastic in, which is more of like he's playing like a tough, chiseled soldier. He looks great. He's really intense. I love him in that but movie. But that comes off of Chopper. Yes. No, he, but I think, but then. I remember seeing Black Hawk Down and already knowing at that point he had been cast I as the I know, Hulk. but like, right. Yes. But like they see that and they're like, right. Yeah. Like yeah. this guy's hot. This yeah. guy's handsome. Uh, but yeah, he's really good in Black Hawk Down. He gets the final monologue and he kind of nails it. It's great. Who? And then, who? yeah, uh, Hulk was, <laughs> was supposed to, to get be, Todd with that one. I got him. Do you know who was supposed to be Hulk? Uh, who? Billy Crudup. Which is why, if you look at Angley's Hulk, the Hulk looks like Billy Crudup. <laughs> like I a, swear to you, like a grumpy Billy Crudup. <laughs> yeah, it's got Billy Crudup's face. I swear to you. I, uh, sure. Uh, Eric Banner gets slotted in very last second. Oh wow, this is huge. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like okay, you know, uh, X Men made Hugh Jackman. Right. right Spider Man right. at the time it felt like Tobey Maguire was. <laughs> Now made, and then he didn't really do movies. No, oh, and he's a weird little Weasley guy, right. so you know he's never going to be yeah, anyway. But on. it was like, here's a new anointment, sure. And then people hate that movie. They hate yeah. that movie. But Troy was already running, right? Yeah, and, it's and like, they, okay. you know, Troy makes money, but nobody, nobody likes Troy. And then there's this, yeah, right. And this, I remember. This oh, is supposed to rebrand him as like a serious. Right. That was the thing. Right, right. I remember this people is gonna being be a weighty like, role. "Okay, he tried to do two summer blockbusters, and they didn't really work." But now this is who Eric Bana is. He's an Oscar perennial. Yeah. And then you see him in this, and he's really solid in this, but it's not a very showy part. No. I mean, his job is just to kind of hold no. the movie. Yeah. I mean, just I mean to, it's not an Oscar nomination like, type part. No. This, this was a year where they had to go out of their way not to nominate him in Best Actor, and they did go and out they of did. their way. Yeah. Not yeah. Let to me. Let me, uh, let me. Well, this you is guys Hoffman, Ledger. It's uh, Hoffman and Ledger and Phoenix. Uh, Strathern. And Strathern, yes. Yeah. And then there's the fifth nominee. And is it Hustle and Flow? Yeah. Terrence Howard. And like, yeah. They, 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 like Strathern and Terrence Howard, they, they both had, were kind of on the outside looking in. And yeah. Go, 
and then yeah. I'm very happy for Terrence Howard's yeah. nomination in that movie. Uh, he's great in that. Movie. He's terrific in that movie. Yeah, but uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, they also didn't nominate Viggo Mortensen. Got a lot of good actors that year. Who uh, you know, Keanu Reeves and Constantine. Like that's no. That's a really good <laughs> performance. Uh, fucking uh, uh, Michael Nirano and Sky High. I mean, we're talking like these were the guys who were like six, seven, eight. You know. <laughs> Keep going, baby. Nicholas Cage in Lord of War. Yeah. Remember well, uh, was Weatherman that year? Oh, maybe it might have been. It was either 05 or 06. I would have nominated Nick Cage in Weatherman, no question. Oh five. Uh, he had that bow and arrow. Yeah. I mean, I would have put Christian Bale in Batman Begins for a Griffey. He's he's he's. I terrific. think that's the one Batman movie where he has a full performance because no, they give him a real. It's a great art. performance. He's yeah. amazing in that. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, the Eric. movie's called Munich. It does not feature Batman. So Eric Bana plays Abner Kaufman, yes. who is a made-up character, and yet they keep talking about his dad as like a, a yeah. war hero. Yeah. So I guess he's supposed to be burdened by some kind of like patriotic responsibility that he wants to live up to. Can I just quickly point out that none of the three major actors in Are this Jewish. movie, yeah, I I, I want to say Daniel Craig's Jewish. He's not. I looked. It I know, up. I but I just wanted. I just want him. This was one of want him for our team. This was one of two. Angry Jews Get Vengeance movies that Daniel Craig did. It's true. And yet he's a fair-haired, (laughs) blue-eyed, you know. Blonde Brit. Steely Brit. uh, Born in Chester, Britain. Nothing reads Jewish about him. I had to look it up because I was like. He's of French Huguenot ancestry. He is not Jewish. No, no. Um, I'm I'm not offended by it. Like I'm no. not saying that to bring no, up a but stink, like, but it is a little bit like ten years earlier he would play you would have this guy as like the 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 racist in like Gandhi. Yeah, <laughs> or yeah, like, you yeah. know, uh, some kind of African like, you know, like he'd play like an Afrikaner, you know, president. The bratty uh, student in school ties or something. Like he looks sure. like the well, what do you want to bigoted say, antagonist. If if you believe the Holy Blood, Holy Grail theory. The Huguenots are descended from Jesus and Mary Magdalene, and Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. So, Jesus was a Jew, but I have Jesus a question a for Jew. you. Was Mary Magdalene? Because it's, yes. it's through the mother. It's All right. through she the was. mother. She, she was. was. She yep. was. All right. All right. Then we're cool. Fair I think enough. She, I think you're correct that she was. Although Fair the enough. Jews at the time were not happy with her. Yeah, I just like that they picked like three actors, like an Australian, a Brit, and Jeffrey Rush is Australian too, right? Two yeah, Australians. and Kieran Hines is Irish. Right. Uh, yeah. And they, they were just like, I don't know, just get guys with weird noses. No, I mean they they get these guys who I mean not Daniel Craig but Kieran Hens, uh, uh, Eric Bana like they have sort of a like a Sephardic look like slightly like you know a little more of a Mediterranean look I guess if you you know have their hair dark. I, I remember and, from the time that they were talking about that like these guys were not necessarily like the character the, the real people that these fictional characters are based on were like not necessarily going to be like like the Daniel Craig character was fair haired. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, so, right. so they that was their out for it. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, I don't care. But they're all fictional characters anyway. So uh, they are all fictional. Ca- I guess they're like composites, right? Yeah. So they could have just done whatever they want. But uh, Matthew Kasovitz, I will point out, he is Jewish, yes. and he's the one he who played a Jew in La Ain yes. in his breakout role, which he directed as well. Yes. Oh, no, he right. He directed that. He's yes. not in. No, it's Cassell. It's, it's is the is, right. Yeah. Um, um, and then he directed Gothic. Uh, yeah, forget. then directed he directed Gothica. Gothica and won the Oscar. <laughs> um, he is, uh, unsurprisingly, my favorite character in the film. He's terrific. But uh, so I'll say they assemble this team yes. for Avner, and Tech it's Jack. you've got uh, and it's assembled by Ephraim, who is Jeffrey Rush, uh, who is his sort of really handler, goodness. Yeah, who is terrific. What do you think of Jeffrey Rush, Todd? I'm a I'm a Jeffrey Rush fan. Yeah, me too. I like him and, here. I and like let's let's go a little more background. Eric Bana is kind of a straight arrow guy, but but tightly wound. His wife is like three months away. He's from got giving a pregnant birth. wife. 
uh, who we like to have sex with. Right. Yeah. But also love of country, you well, know. Likes to have sex with the country, too. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, he loves fucking that country sideways while she's pregnant. Absolutely. Uh, so they assemble this team, and it's a South African mm-hmm. uh, driver. I guess it, Daniel Craig's the wheels guy, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's just sort of your number two. I guess. Yeah. His name is Wheels Hershkowitz in this movie, isn't it? <laughs> His name, I think, is like Steve. It's not like really like a Jewish yeah. warrior name. Steve Blonde. <laughs> Steve of the Maccabees. <laughs> Guys, me and Griffin are joking. Yeah. We can do all this. Um, you've got uh, Matthew Kasovitz. He's a toy maker yeah. and a bomb maker, I guess, as a result. Although, right. let's be, let's, I like his performance a lot. This guy is a shitty bomb maker. Terrible. But he that's makes what like, I like three about bombs. Him. One of them works. One of them is too powerful. And one of them blows him up. Like, he's not like a great, like, they maybe should have like combed Israel a little harder for him. Okay. What I like about him is uh, the movie acknowledges that, right? Yeah, I also, sure, right, I also yeah. think he's kind of in his own inspirational Disney underdog movie, which is like the little <laughs> bomb maker who could. He just, everything's against him, but he just believes someday he's going to make a great bomb. This is also unquestionably who I would play in this movie, right? Because I always yes. play that game where it's like, okay, who would I play in this movie? I'd, I'd just, I'd chew that shit up so hard. Little, little, little Frenchy Jew toy maker? Yeah. That's me. You kidding me? I, I, so who would I play? Who would you play? You'd play Wheels or Schools. Yeah, because I'm sort of a fair-haired Jew. No, I think you'd be, I think you'd maybe be Kieran Hines. Well, Kieran Hines, uh, Carl. Yeah. He's, I mean, he looks like an accountant, but I mean, I think the idea is that he's a former sort of tough guy, Mossad soldier or something. Like, he's like, he's someone who's like got some blood on his hands. He's a regular Gal Gadot type. Uh, I don't know what that means. Gal Gadot, former Mossad agent. Which is pretty crazy. Awesome. I just um, always like to point out that Wonder Woman has almost definitely killed people. Jesus. That's true. Probably. Then there is Hans, played mm-hmm. by, I, I need to look, Hans Zichler. He's the, the sort of the, the, he's like the guy. Yeah, the Danish uh, antiquity guy. Yeah. He's great. Yeah. He's really good. Who is that guy? No idea. Where the fuck did they find? Yeah, everyone's great. I would say yeah. everyone's great in this movie. But like, I mean, I'm looking out. I mean, he's a German actor. He's in some German stuff. I don't know what to tell you. He's great. I think he's terrific at his, you know. This is this is the, the thing I like about this movie, and the part that's like I think left over from Eric Roth's script mm-hmm. is the scene where they're like, "Here's what everybody's job is," and then the movie just utterly just forgets about that. It's and very, doesn't care. This is not a movie that is process oriented. No, this no. is not a movie where I mean, like we get through osmosis and through some dialogue that like they're going to Matthew Matthew Almarique's character. Mm-hmm. What's his name? Uh, Lewis. And like he sells them information yeah. and they use this information to, but like it never says like who are these people they're trying to kill? Who, like, what do they do? Why are they, you know, it's all vague. Like you would think there would be a script where it would be like you would maybe uh, be watching someone, then it would cut to a black and white photograph and then they'd be like looking at the table and they'd be like, there's, you know, yeah. oh, the jackal, you know, he killed eight Israelis in a bomb. Oh, that's why we got to kill him. Yeah. Captain never Boomerang, do that. deadly foe of the flag. <laughs> like, it feels like you could do the Suicide Squad, Amanda Waller explanation for every character in this movie. That's a two hour, 45 minute movie. It's not like they didn't yeah, have they time have the to time. do it. Right. But it shows you that's not what he's concerned with. But as your so it was Eric Roth's script first. Yeah, he wrote the he wrote the original script and then Tony Kushner did. Punch up, which was apparently just like basically a page one rewrite, as right. you can tell. But, Is it, right. And then they're, but course, like they they're kept, both credited. They right. kept Roth's structure, so they had to. This is a pretty cushy script. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we can all agree. Um, yeah. I mean, and they, he never worked with Roth again or before. Really? Roth has got a weird career. Yeah. Because he wrote Forrest Gump. So right. obviously that's his sort of like eternal calling card. 
But uh, he also wrote like The Postman and like The Horse Whisperer. Cool. Like a lot. Eric Roth. No, I was going, whoo. It but sounded he, like who? Who? Yeah. If you if who? you guys but, do a Eric Roth miniseries, I'm there for every episode. You want you want to be in there? You want to Eric be in there Roth. for a movie he wrote called Jane's House? Oh no, it was a TV movie. Well, I was reading, uh, but he also, of course, wrote like The Insider and Ali. He like worked with Michael Mann a lot. He he wrote Benjamin Button. Well, so, I was reading know. an interview with Spielberg because I've just been reading a lot of Spielberg shit recently sure. while doing this podcast. Uh, Cruz and Spielberg apparently came close to doing Benjamin Button years earlier. That would have been weird. Really weird. That would have been a weird movie. But in that period of time where they were, had been dying to make a movie together. What a weird movie part. that is. Though. Weird movie. I love, that. I love that movie. That's a great love take. That movie. I, I haven't heard that take in a while. I like that movie a lot. I think that movie's due for a reevaluation. Yeah, because I was thinking about the movie and I'm like, I saw it. And I remember that it's about a little old man who turns into a sexy young baby. But I do not remember the movie that well. I And I, I was just seeing Hidden Figures. Yeah. like, And I was like. Oh yeah, remember when Taraji and Mahershala Ali they were married yeah. in Benjamin Button like eight years ago? Yeah. yeah. And now they're flirting again. They're flirting up a storm. I yeah. find... in Todd's least favorite movie of twenty sixteen. <laughs> really? Hidden figures. It's it's fine. I don't I don't hate it, but yeah. I, I, I think you kinda hate I'm it. I'm not as gung ho about it as, as David, who it's his favorite movie of twenty sixteen. So yeah, um, absolutely. I find banging the drum. I find Benjamin Button really interesting because I think People at the time wrote it off as this is failing to be Forrest Gump. Yes. Like they were like, it's, this is what it's aiming to do and it sure. doesn't hit. Sure. And I think it's a movie that is not concerned with being emotional. Yeah. No. I, I think it's a very existential, meditative yeah. movie. I need to rewatch it. It's David Fincher's Wes Anderson movie. Right. Because I feel is. like people at the time were like, this is an Oscar movie from Fincher. Like Fincher's usually all fucked up and like he just, you know, played it safe to get an Oscar nomination. And I think that's. He was, mean, just, he was just coming a off a huge Zodiac. misread of David yeah. Fincher because he would never be interested in that kind yeah. of shit. Yes, also, he'd just I come think, off as Zodiac. I think Benjamin Button's a very cynical movie. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's it's about like how how sort of inherently doomed this guy is to live alone, right? Sure. Um, and I also think it's it's like pointedly bottled in all of its emotions. Yeah. I mean, he holds away from all the big scenes, and I also just think like. He's so unconcerned for a guy who's so meticulous about thinking through the reality of what happened or recreating things. He's so unconcerned with the logic of this situation that doesn't really make any sense that he's using it in kind of like, you know, an abstract expressionistic way to get at these ideas of just like a man out of place and out of time. But was it a better expression of that concept than the fourth season of Mork and Mindy where their child was played by Jonathan Winters as Murr? I mean, I'm I, not I think sure. they're about equal. I do. I think they're very similar. This they're is bosom why buddies. you get Vandiver. They're this bo- is why you get VDW. They're bosom buddies, those two things. It's also, I think that movie is interesting because of how little narrative effect the lead character has. Yeah. Like, he just kind of wanders through shit, and rather than Forrest Gump, it's like, but he was at the right place at the right time. It's like, no, this guy just kind of wandered through life, and he never really fit in anywhere. Yeah. But guys, what about Munich? Oh, right. We're talking about Munich. <laughs> so he assembles his team. I mean, like you said, like, and I know we say this on the podcast all the time, the plot is, the, there is no plot. It's vignette It's very, very vignette It's a series of, yeah. It's a series of, quote unquote, missions, but they're not connected. It's almost nightmarish, this movie, in terms of how it kind of, like, just barfs out some new scenario that's, you know, always, like, morally very muddy and confused mm-hmm. and, like, completely isolated from information. Like, we don't know 
who's this nice he goes to the nice Italian like shop and he likes the clerk lady and he yeah. you know he's buying some sausages like we gotta murder this he looks like a fucking playwright he doesn't yeah. look like some ter- you know he's in like a tweed suit you know go on no that's uh what I was gonna say you were talking about the lack of sort of exposition explaining who these people are or what they have to do and that we're just sort of seeing structurally this movie is actually kind of similar to like something like Elephant yeah. Where it's like this repetitive, like, we're going to see, you know, them understand what they have to do, them doing it, and then sort the of processing toll. it afterwards. Yeah. And it's that sort of in a series, but in this kind of, um, I, I mean, almost abstract way because you're not giving that much context. And I think what's interesting about that is you're kind of knowing as much as they would know Yeah, in a sure. way. I mean, right, sure, right, they right. had probably briefing a little more information. But it also is like you're forced to look at these people they're about to kill the same way they would in a situation where there's that guilt of like, are they, they seem like a nice guy. This is just a dude in a nice jacket. Like, why would I have to kill this right, guy? Right, well, that, that first scene, uh, the first assassination where it's- The it's Arabian Kasim- Nights guy or is that- Yes, no, that's, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. With Kasimitz and Bana are pointing the guns at him and they like don't even want to fire, even though they yeah. like know it's him. Yeah. Right. And that thing where he's like sort of like, he's like, no, 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 no. And he's like trying to push uh, Kasimitz's gun down. He makes all the violence feel very real. Like the the bullets, like the gunshots are very loud and kind of jarring and not, it's like not poppy, you know, not Hollywood, but well, also it is kind of exciting. One of my favorite shots in the movie is mm. on the balconies at the hotel. Oh, yeah. And it's uh, Bonna standing there and then there's his target and the next one over and then there's a couple that's just fucking <sighs> that all the time. They're so the good. The canoodling, the classic canoodling couple. Do you yeah. think Steven Spielberg at this time was just like, Really like, man, everyone's getting laid. Like he was just really like, he just got into up. sex for the first time. <laughs> but yeah, there's a and so so it's kind of shot in it's shot in wide and deep focus. So you have all these like different little stories playing out in the same shot, right? And it's just Bana talking to this guy, and it's like, you know, you're still early in the movie, so you're still like, yeah, these guys are gonna get these terrorists. Mm-hmm. But like, it's every shot even underlines that these are like human beings, right? That maybe they maybe they were responsible for this horrible atrocity, but like they still probably don't deserve to be blown up in a hotel room with no trial yeah. or no you know presentation of evidence or anything like that. Well, yeah. and if you had scenes with Jeffrey Rush giving him the dossier and explain who everyone is and what they did, then you as an audience, because that scene would then have to quickly because it's a movie and there's a finite amount of time. You're like, great, I get it. Like, I get it. This justice, guy's bad. I know yeah. how to view it. Right. I'm not going to have any sympathy for him. Right. But in real life, if you were handed a dossier like that and then you had a little time to think over it and then you see someone in real and life. And part of your job is like making sure they're them so you kind of talk to them for a minute and you're like, oh, you know, what's up? Right. It, unless you're a sociopath, you're going to have some feeling of like, are you sure this is the right guy? Are you sure they did it? Yeah. They seem decent. And by robbing us of those sort of explanations, the movie forces you to be in the same position that someone like Eric Bana would, which is like looking at the gestures these characters are making, how they're interacting with other people, the little glimpses we get of their lives and being like, this doesn't seem like someone who needs to be assassinated. Uh, Yeah. Which makes it all upsetting and kind of terrible. Well, and then also that assassination, right, is the bed bomb. Right? Yeah, and yeah. so that's the one that almost blows up the sexy couple, and they like yeah. they make sure that the sexy couple's okay, and they're all obviously she can't completely see traumatized. Yeah, yeah. She can't see. He also he shoots. I feel like every he shoots and cuts every sequence of this movie with the same amount of tension. Mm-hmm. So you feel as nervous in the scenes where someone does actually end up doing something as the scenes where nothing happens. Like he's using the language of thrillers and of tension to like. When, yes. when when you're watching him have the conversation with the guy and the couple there, you don't know if anything's going to happen in that scene because 
he's been ratcheting it so much consistently that you're like, this might be a misdirect. Well, and also there's the this like they suddenly the couple they're they're so fucking in love with each other yeah. that they like bang into a shutter or something and it makes a noise and it like startles him and right. Like, you're, it's such an edgy, I remember I saw Spielberg's this. Spielberg's already doing fake outs on you. Yeah. Right, I saw this in a the theater and I just remember it being this like very jangly, yeah. edgy movie that's like, you know, the, the explosions are all very visceral and like not fun explosions. I don't, I don't know that there's a director working who's better at making you feel exactly what he wants you to feel mm-hmm. than Steven Spielberg and yeah. this movie is just like constant paranoia. Right, and that's why, I guess why he gets hit with manipulative. Yeah. But, like, that's, manipulative means that you can, like, see the strings really easily and you feel manipulated, right? Like, you know, like, you're just like, oh, you're just trying to get a rise out of me. And Spielberg's. He's effective. This is no monster calls. Yeah. Mm. Boom. Roasted. Yeah. Uh, Is this movie about Steven Spielberg losing his virginity? The more I think about it. It feels like someone who just had sex for the first time and can't stop sharing details about, like, as if they've already had sex. Like, hey, you know what my favorite part of sex is? You know when you're sexing somebody, you're just so excited to join the table uh, and, and also, have those sexing conversations? Well, also, when he had sex with someone, he had a feverish image of the 1972 <laughs> Munich massacre of the Israeli athletes. And right. he, he was like, I guess that's ours. He called up Kushner and he was like, can you write a movie about this weird sex dream I had? And he's like, that's a real thing that happened. <laughs> So, but we should, as part as, as this is unfolding, once in a while, as Bonna's character sleeping, I guess, and this is a bit of a Hollywood storytelling mm-hmm. device, but he has these visions yeah. of the um, the hostage situation mm-hmm. of of 1972, which are also very grim and yeah. very and similarly, there's a similarly amateurish quality, like sort of on both ends, which mm-hmm. I like that mirroring. Like Bonna's team. You know, they're a bunch. They seem like a bunch of middle managers who've been like given guns and elusive names and like go kill people. And like the hostage, you know, the Black September, the terrorists, they seem like they don't know what they're doing, yeah. right? You know, like half the time they like just sort of like fire their guns wildly because they just know like they're in trouble or right or like, you know, yeah. something has to happen. I don't know. Like it, it's all very chaotic and they're really scary scenes, the, uh, the hostage. Can we talk about the, the safe house section in the middle of the movie? This is Todd's, no. Todd's favorite. No, you you refuse. No, yeah, we because it's too because <laughs> it's too perfect. You don't want to. No, no, we can talk about it. Yeah. We can talk about it. Uh, with Papa, you mean? No, with uh, the when they are at the safe house that Louis has sent them to, and the Palestinians uh, are also there. Yeah, and they listen to Al Green's uh, "Let's Stay Together." And they do. No, right. That's a great scene. Yeah, the only song that can cure that can affect world peace. Yeah, right. If only, if only, like we could have that at the table right now. Just yeah. Al Green. Is he? He's dead. No, he's not. Al Green's still alive. Still the going? He's still going. I think he's still alive. Um, that conversation he has, Still going. yeah, uh, smoking, yeah, with the Palestinian guy is so fucking good. It is because it's just like, oh, this is like an infinite feedback loop. This is something that can't be untangled, and know? that's something the movie is reinforcing throughout. Which is like, again, Bana doesn't know what's happening to the in the outside world that much, yeah. but we're hearing like, look, you know, you kill these terrorists, more terrorists just sort of pop up, even right. more radical terrorists often, you know. Because you're martyring people and you're, you know, you're making this a war. And like, so, yeah, the, the next soldiers are even scarier than the last one. So very early in the film, a lot of the time when there's a foreign language and it's not important to the plot, it's not mm-hmm. subtitled. But very early in the film, they go to this lecture from a woman who's talking about 
uh, in German, I believe. She's like babbling. Yeah, she's, yes. she's talking about how you need to get beyond concepts of good and evil and right. like see the systems that are oppressing you and all this stuff. It's very Tony Kushner. It's right. like he just randomly dropped in somebody from Angels in America <laughs> yes. in the middle of this but, and I love, script. But, and I love the fact that she's saying that. And I think it's Eric Bana and Matthew Almerique are in meeting in that yeah. scene, right? And they're like, and he, he's like, what the fuck is she saying? He's like, I don't know. I never know what she's talking about. Like, <laughs> she's like dispensing this sort of almost accidental profundity. And, yeah. Uh, and, and that, that's like, anyway, like, here's six, 60 grand. Like. Yeah, and that like becomes the like lodestone for the movie, like the North Star. Like everything in the movie points toward you need to get beyond seeing good and evil right. and understand that like there's it's not even like shades of gray. It's like they don't exist. Like you've invented a dialectic that is pointless. Right. And if you can't get beyond that, you can't like see anything clearly. And that's sort of what that safe house scene says to me is like they all want home, but like home is this weird concept to mm -hmm. begin with well those are like the two sort of biggest themes i feel like he keeps on hitting on in like a traditional spielberg -y way you mm -hmm. know as like okay here's a clear thesis that's running through the movie this concept of what home is that right. what drives everyone is just being able to have a home and be safe in your home which is like one of the three most primal human instincts that we yeah. cannot kick out of our system no matter how much we develop as a society everyone just wants to have a home feel like they own it feel like they're protected there um, and that's, you know, like maybe the most Spielbergy moment in the movie is when you have Eric Bana looking at the model kitchen in the window yeah. and seeing the reflections of Cassavitz there, which then turns into Matthew Almerique. And it's like this whole thing of like, OK, what well, what is he actually fighting for? Like, what is a home actually? You know, this feels like it's a representation of the kind of kitchen I'd want to live in. But what price does that come at? Literally, I mean, this is the one scene where I think he lays it on a little thick, right? I like it when Stevie lays it on thick. I'm not complaining, but it, but it is. He goes blunt here because Almerick goes like, "It's a nice kitchen, but it will cost you, you know, like that kind <laughs> of thing." That's true. Yeah, yeah it, right. it, they literally they all the subtext becomes text. Yeah. Um, but home is the main thing driving all these people, which is very relatable. Right, and and we should say in the safe house scene, they're all pretending to be like he's like I'm Etta, like he's pretending to be part of the Basque liberation right. movement or maybe the like the Bader Madoff, like all, all of these sort of liberation movements of the era that we're about, like, finding a home for X people. Right, like, and then I think that's the second big the theme of the movie is, like, identity and allegiance. Like, yeah. who are you part of? Not who are you as a person, but who are you in relation to what you are united with? Because you have people hiding behind layers and layers and layers of deception, but it's constantly coming under question, like, who are you working for? I told you I'm working for that. No, I know you're working for this, but you think you're working for that. You're actually working for this. Yeah. You know, everyone has, like, bought into, to some degree or another, some kind of community or some kind of, um, you know, legacy yeah. or, or some nationalism, some pride, whatever it is, that they feel like they need to represent that or defend that or attack the other. But no Omar, one really knows where they stand. Omar and, Metwali. In that sense, it's that's really good. In that sense, it's interesting that the movie ends in Brooklyn. Right. Home. That's Yeah, that he's yeah. robbed of his home quote unquote of, home. Yeah, yeah, home of the movie Brooklyn. Um, which, oh, that's why I recognize it. I was spending the whole time. I was like, I know I've seen that this was in a movie the first. Before. I mean, this was the first, and Brooklyn was the second. But right. it's not only that he is an immigrant now to yes. another country, and it's not only that the United States has always sort of self-conceptualized it as self as a home for people from everywhere, and New York especially. And New has York always especially. Been. Yes. And but it's also like the United States is a country where often your identity as an American is secondary to your identity as something else. Like right. you are yes. an American, but you're all you're a Jewish American. You carry you're your an baggage as an American. Yeah, exactly. Yes, right. And that comes first before American. That's the first yeah. word in the hyphen. You yeah. know. Um. Yeah, that is really interesting. I, I just think uh, Manola had a line. I want to find it. But we can get back to it. Keep, keep talking. 
Yeah, it's just, I Safe mean. Safe house scenes go bad. I love that Papa scene. Yeah, Papa, yeah, Papa scene. Michael Papa. Lonsdale. Yeah. Um, that's uh, Michael Lonsdale. I guess, is he the father of Amarik, or is he? Yeah, just... yeah, he's he's. I mean, it's entirely possible they're making it up, but yeah, he's he claims to be. They're at least involved together yeah, in involved. this. Yeah, you know, and they, these are people. And this is another fascinating sort of shade of gray, right? Is like they sell secrets from everyone to everyone. Like, there's right. no partisan thinking. There's no like allegiance or patriotism at work. Like they're simply like traffickers of information. Well, much like Dominic Toretto, his priority is protecting his family. Right. And you're saying Papa's priority. Papa's priority is... uh, If they added Papa to the Fast and the Furious series... They could tomorrow. Lonsdale. Yeah. He's still alive. He's 85. Oh, he'd be perfect. He'd be perfect. Yeah. He'd be great. What if it literally he plays Papa? And like it's Dom needs some info, and he goes to Papa, and Papa hands like, him a Corona. Yeah, Papa's like uh, carving the fat off of like a rabbit or whatever. You know, he's like un- he's making some unpasteurized cheese, and he's like, no, Dom, you know, uh, that'd be great. And, and we realize that these are in a shared universe. Yeah. But that is, I mean, Papa doesn't feel an allegiance to uh, country, to religion, you know, to race. Papa's allegiance is to family and every time we see him he's at this massive estate they keep on talking about how much money he's made and the point of that money was to be able to support all of these people to create this sort of commune almost you know it feels like he lives in this bubble where it's just Mm -hmm. great food and all of his family (laughs) and the way that we don't know for sure if Almarik is actually some because we don't know at all if anything they're saying is true yeah the the family's so big we don't know how much of it is blood and how much of it's chosen yeah you know but it is the sense of like he chose his people this is who he's protecting this is what he stands sure. for and everyone else in the movie is kind of constantly questioning yeah you know where they fit into it and he's the one guy who's got his feet totally planted he's also the the most even keeled calm person in a very jittery movie yeah. In a yeah, movie Michael Lonsdale? Yes. Yeah. In a movie where everyone's always on edge, he's the one guy who is just like, I know what I've done. And I've made my deal. I've made my bet. And make sure to get this fat off of that yeah, rabbit. Yeah, you got to get the fat off so the rabbit. So when he comes back in toward the end and is vaguely threatening, yes. Yes. like throws the movie completely off the rails. Yes. And like, I sort of imp- in I a took, good way. I took that scene as him giving him kind of a friendly warning, like, look, Matthew Almerica sort of sold you guys out. So, yeah. you know, watch your back. Yeah, also, yeah. I'm sending you some unpasteurized cheese. <laughs> Which I would love it if that guy called me right now. Yeah. It was just like, I'm sending you some cheese. He does make cheese sound great. He makes it sound terrific. Hugo Drax. He's Hugo Drax in Moonraker. Oh, FYI, right. guys. He's yes. the villain of Moonraker, Michael yeah. Lonsdale. Um, just want that said. I want that on the it. record. Thank you, Dave. Wait, where's Ben? Producer Ben? We haven't even introduced Ben this whole episode. We've been so, so having so much fun talking Munich. The Ben Ducer? Ben, are you here? Yeah, I'm here. Producer Ben? <laughs> The Poet Laureate? Mm-hmm. Our finest film critic? Yeah. The Peeper? I've been known to look. At Just do the, the names. The Fuckmaster? Yeah. Don't Fart make Detective? Them all questions. Fart Detective. Dirtbag Benny? Mm-hmm. You're not Professor Crispy, no. right? No. Okay. But you have graduated to certain titles over the course of different magazines? Yeah. Okay. Can I just run a couple by you and you tell me if they're correct or not? I will confirm if they're correct, yes. Producer Ben Kenobi? True. Kylo Ben? True. Ben Night Shyamalan? True. Ben Sate? Oh, yeah, true. Say Benny thing. Uh, dot, dot, dot. Ailey Benz with a dollar sign at the end. Well, Just call him Ailey Benz. Yeah. Yeah, those are his names. Okay. Great. Also, hey, also the goyest goy of all goys. <laughs> yeah, how'd you feel about this big old Jew fest? It's great. I really can't <laughs> add very much. <laughs> uh, 
cool action movie. Uh, the context with the whole Palestine-Israel thing makes me uncomfortable being on the record talking about it, so I'm not going to say much. You want to take yourself off the record. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll throw this out. Um, in espionage movies, it seems like they it's like a trope to have a kid almost get killed. Sure. Oh, That's yeah. true. That's yeah, true. We haven't yeah. It's a good scene, scene, though. Yeah. I don't like it. Love watching Kieran Hines book it. <laughs> he, has to, he has to run around that corner. got to put a hand on top of that fedora so it doesn't fly away. Yeah, I'd prefer next time a cat or a dog. Well, like a cat's under threat. So you the, want cat, them to save the, the cat, cat answers the phone. Yeah, exactly. Oh, That's what meow, I'm meow. saying. <laughs> then I would really be upset. <laughs> great, great. Thank work there, Griffin. Um, yeah, oh, that's do you want scene. me to get the cat out of the room? Yeah, please. Yeah, do. yeah. All right, hold ben. on. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, it's what, it's what we needed in the middle of it this is Munich episode was a, a good old fashioned bit. A Foley bit. Yeah. Um, ben, Ben, uh, you know, immediately jumping to cool action movie <laughs> does bring up. I, I think we should acknowledge this. This movie's lasting legacy is kind of the the scene and knocked up. Yeah, I feel yeah, like I was that's about to most mention of this movie's cultural cuts. legacy now. Okay, Ben, just ben grab by the scruff. Cat. Grab by the scruff. <laughs> He's really committed. Okay. Uh, yeah, the scene knocked up, which comes out two years later. Yes. In which they are at the club, and they I guess they've all just watched Munich, or yeah. no, maybe they just want to talk. They're about They're just Munich. talking about. He Munich. says, like, you know what I saw the other day, and it's a fucking cool movie, yeah. Munich, and all of them go like, oh yeah, Munich. It's, it's like Jay Baruchel and Jason yeah. Siegel, and right? Whoever and they're else. like, that movie flips the script. The Jews are the one. You know, and then he has the like the line like, "If any of us get laid tonight, it's because of Eric Bana and Munich." Yeah, which is a great line. What do you think of this line? It's a good. It's a good line. It's a good line. I am a little dismayed that I, I love this movie. That that's over. A little dismayed that this is now that this is its legacy and the and the weird sex scene and occasionally yeah. somebody who remembers that it's somehow anti-Israel. Right, and um, uh, you should you should know that Steven Spielberg sent Judd Apatow a framed still from the film Munich signed. <laughs> Because when he saw Nick. Yeah. Well, it does feel like the joke of that sequence, and I think why it hit so well, is that the idea of anyone watching Munich and being like, yeah. oh, fuck yeah. Hardcore exactly, yeah. Jews. Is, right, is really funny, because that's not what that movie is. It's but not I, a Jewish revenge fantasy. Well, no, exactly. I mean, it's sort of a, yeah, it's a complete it's, it's um, to, it's undermining to under, of a Jewish revenge fantasy. It's to underline fantasy, right? their man-child status, right. etc. But right, yeah. so few people had seen Munich. No, no, that, it's that funny. Like, came, now it's been cemented. I think yeah. people think it is what they think it is in that movie. Yeah. Like, the joke at the time was, like, Munich's very austere, if they think this movie is badass yeah. and that that's leading to them getting laid, right. then they've misread Munich. Because I would say the most quote unquote badass scene is when they. So Kieran Hines, Hines, I, can't, I don't know how to say it. I say Hines. We've mentioned him so many times on this podcast. I know. Mance Raider. Uh, Mance Raider himself. Uh, there we go. He gets caught and uh, assassinated by this one shot character, Marie. Jose, Jose Cruz. Who is she? She's in a Dime Bell and the Butterfly. She's like the main nurse. She's a very, oh, yeah. very fine French actress. Oh, right. She was in the uh, the Barbarian Invasion. She's, yeah. she's Canadian. She's I'm a huge French. fan of hers. Really? Oh, she's French Canadian? Yeah. Um, I'm a huge fan of hers. I think she's really good. So actress. she kills poor Kieran. You know, and you, he gets a nice little goodbye scene, actually, yeah. at the bar with uh, yeah. Eric. And so then they exact their revenge with those weird little, like, flashlight guns that, like, the, so do the little, the, uh, the, uh, and she st- it's a creepy scene, but that's the most badass scene, right? Like that's in another movie. That's when they're taking their like uh, their, yeah. uh brutal revenge. But think about how upsetting that scene is because they walk in, she's there. Who are you? What's going on? She sees Banner. She puts it together, right? right? They take out the things. They start assembling them. She goes, well, at least get, let me get dressed, you know. 
reaches is reaching for the gun, you go, okay, I know where this is going. It's going right. to be a shootout thing. Then she doesn't get the gun, right? Yeah. She does her last-ditch attempt that's like, well, uh, you know, tries to seduce them to see if she can throw them off. It'd be a waste to let these talents, you know. And then they shoot the thing, and it, it it's like some weird, it's almost like the, the cattle stun gun from No Country for Old Men. Like, yeah. it alle- immediately leaves this mark, right. but it doesn't really start bleeding and letting out for a little while. Oh, she starts breathing. And he starts holding, you know? Like, you see her with these two large red dots. And she's, like, stumbling around, and they're trying to kind of, like, just get her to she's sit back down. She's half-robed. She goes to her cat. She hugs her cat. And they're just like, sit down, sit down. And you just have to sit with her, you know, watching her stumble around really uncomfortably, knowing that she's about to die before it starts getting gruesome. And it's like, this isn't a movie that gets any satisfaction of, yeah. like, you know, it'd be so easy to, especially when it's, like, you know, a, a honeypot character like that, you know? Sure. Where it's like, oh, her job is to seduce and kill. It'd be so easy to just be like, yeah, you fucking get what you deserve. And I feel like the shittier version of Munich that the knocked up guys think they're watching, that's the kind of scene it would right, do. Right, because, I mean, she's not a character with any dimensionality or, like, I mean, she's just an assassin. We only yeah. know her as someone who kills one of the, like, it's not like, it's not like there should be sympathy for her, and yet. Right, to hold on her death that much is just like, death is never cool. <laughs> Yeah, you know it doesn't matter if someone's done something wrong if they're on the opposite side. Yeah, it's never a pleasant thing to watch, even you know, regardless of the the viscerality of, of blood and gore and whatever. It's just like to watch someone in their final moments accept death, and she's like puttering around like a baby. I mean, she's like losing her facilities, and it's just like grabbing a cat. Let me sit in the chair I like, you know. Yeah, it sucks. Death blows. I want to go on the record and say that I think death is fucking lame. Yeah, Todd. I I think if Eric Bana comes and shoots me, I'm gonna hug my cat. I think that's a good way to go. (laughs) When Eric Bana comes for us, and he comes for us all, sooner or later, (laughs) he comes for us all. Yeah, he does. You gotta grab your cat and give it a nice little hug. Um, my cat, my cat's name is Pig. (laughs) Is it true? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, we'll be selling Pig plush in the (laughs) blank check online store. Oh, I have actually a pitch for you guys. Oh, sure. Why don't we just make per- like customized blankets? Yeah, that's what we should do. We should make like stadium blankets with our faces on them. You know, for the blankies. Yeah, that's what we should do. Blankies. This store is going to be open any day now. Blanky We're blankies. working on it. Um, other thoughts about this movie? I mean, should we talk about the sex scene? <laughs> we should. I don't know. Yeah, well, that's the thing. So they do all this stuff. They kill lots of people. Eventually, Bana, does he retire or do they retire him? He's just he's he's out. They he's can't done. pull him back in. They yeah. have one right. They have one mission that goes kind of wrong where they're trying to kill this big shot, and instead they kill this like teenager, and yeah. it's sort of a disaster. Oh, so hey. then he's out. He's in Brooklyn, and what what is it about? Um, Griffin, you uh, were on a, a a show where you had to be like set in the seventies. A vinyl, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is also mostly set in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh. What did you think of the fashion in those days? I dig it. I do too, and I actually I thought that during the movie, but I thought it wouldn't be cool to bring up on this podcast. Well, I brought it up for you. Everyone looks really cool in this movie. Hell yeah! It's it's a really well executed seventies uh, uh, costume uh, world because um, they don't they don't feel costumey. Everyone feels like it's like real yeah. outfits, and they do the thing that the best period films do, which is like. The clothes are mostly from like six years earlier than the movie was set because mm. fashion like lasts, you know. People are wearing older clothes. Uh, I think everyone looks cool in this movie. I think seventy stuff is cool. I think it's a good fucking zone to set stories in. I sure. like all the facial hair. I love chops. Yeah, yeah. Stashes. Um, but I like like Kieran Hines is sort of 
still like in a 60s mode. You know, he mm. looks like he's like from the Anderson tapes or something. It's like this is an older guy and he's holding on to his his prime. James Bond's haircut is pretty pretty rough. What the hell is he talking about? Oh, you mean Craig? You mean Daniel Craig? Yeah, you know this is it, this is the year before Casino Royale. Yes. Two. Or oh yeah, no, yeah, Casino Royale is oh six. Yeah. Right. So this is he's just about to pop. Daniel yeah, he's Craig. just he's yeah. just about to become a huge star. But right now he's still like steely British theater actor Daniel Craig, and right? very much like a supporting player. Right, like eighth lead in Road to Perdition, Daniel yeah. Craig. Oh, that's yeah. really good in that. It's terrific. So, in Road to yeah. It, that's, the, that's a mushroom cut though. <laughs> Right, saying that's enough. <laughs> There's a moment in this film when he when he gets back and he meets the Israeli soldiers who are like escorting him, yeah. and they're like in awe of him. Mm-hmm. They're talking to him as if they're the knocked up guys, and yeah. they're like, "We know who you are. You're not allowed to say it, but you're fucking cool, right?" And they put out their hand to shake his hand, and he like really hesitantly does it slowly. Yeah, and it's so clear this movie's framing it as like this guy isn't some oorah hero. Yeah. you know, he's not like the underdog defender. This is a guy who's got to live with this for the rest of his life. I just want to. I just remembered that Kieran Hens is who Daniel Craig shoots in Road to Perdition. That's like mm-hmm. sets everything off in the movie. Oh, that's crazy. Remember and, that? And then, uh, and then Superman sees it. Yeah. Little Superman. Tyler Hawk. Yeah. He's a little Superman. Oh, okay. Yeah. And and also, Matthew Almerich is the guy who James Bond punches in Quantum of Solace. True. That is true. And uh, Michael Lonsdale played the city of Chicago. In right, yes, yes. He yes, played yes, the yes. entire city. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and Matthew Kasovitz was The Rain. Yeah. What a great movie. Um, it's, uh, Road yeah. to Perdition. Yes. Todd, weigh in. I like Road to Perdition. Like I, I, would not like say it's, I would not say great, but I like it. I like it a lot. My favorite, Mendes. Probably mine, too. What's, what's it? Well, I like Skyfall, actually. Skyfall, yeah. 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 I like Skyfall, say, for that one scene. Which one scene? When he just goes into a no, yeah, when he just sexual like, abuse survivor shower. Here. Let me yeah. get in the shower with you. Yeah. yeah. We've just talked about how you were like a <laughs> sex weird slave. scene. That is a yeah. When you jump in your That's shower. It's an objectively odd scene. That I feel scene like sucks. Daniel Craig has talked about that scene like ever since he made it. As yeah. like an example of like, why do I play this guy? Yeah, this guy's this guy is bizarre. This guy's gross. Yeah. Um oh, but but I mean the the sex scene in this movie is interesting not just because uh it's it's so over the top because he's done so few sex scenes in his career, but it's also like the denouement of the film. Yeah, so yeah, right, we're on the sex scene. Yeah. yeah. And well, no, no, it's and also because it's cross cutting with the massacre right. of, of these poor Israeli athletes. It's an odd choice. It yeah. is a it's almost a bold choice, I would say. Right? Rather yeah, than I, a misfire. There were it's intentional. There were yeah. many defenses of this movie at right. the time, but of course. You know, it's when there's an obviously weird scene in a movie. Like, you think about Spider-Man 3, which has a lot of problems, but all anybody remembers is the scene where he dances. Right, right. And, like, all anybody remembers about this movie is this one, like, really tonally strange kind of off-the-wall choice, which I, I really, I actually really liked this time around. I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, eh, I, I liked know. it more than I thought. I, in my <sighs> head, so I feel like you could cut one shot out and then you'd be fine. And the yeah. shot is him orgasming and, like, just, like, Beads of sweat flying into the air. And now in my head, that was like literally like so much water suddenly. Yeah. With, and it's not. It gets into flash dance territory. Not that or bad. Like that. Yeah. But still, I do feel like maybe, I don't know, just do some pickups, right? In my, like, in, in my head, it was five minutes long. I think yes, back me on too. It all the time. Yeah. I'm just like, yeah. 
it's it, not that bad. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I'll admit that I get that it was jarring for people. And I do think the cross. I mean, the idea, of course, is that he's 100 percent traumatized. Yeah. Right. By the violence. And like the, the violence is all sort of becoming it's all blended together for him as well. And the fact that the movie is kind of bookended by these sex sequences, the one in the beginning of the film is not very erotic, is very just kind of like this is just a married couple having sex. She, it's romantic. Know, she's pantsless. He's nothing. Right. Clothed. Right, and there's like That's half a blanket naked, right? over them. Yeah, nothing yeah. clothed. Yeah. Um, but it's it's very just like, you know, he doesn't do any flashy camera work or anything. It's just watching two people make love who are in love with each other, right? Yeah, this is moving. And then the end of the movie, it's like he's having this very visceral, like torrid thrusting. sex, you know, shot in this very, very cinematic way, cross-cut with like the horrors that he's never going to be able to live down. Like this is defining him for the rest of his life now. Well, it's because, you know... At the start, he thinks you can be safe and you can have a home. At the end, right. he knows you can never be safe. You can right. never have a home. Right. right. He's sort of in that, yeah, he'll always be looking over his shoulder. And also, I think... He's got this extra charge now that's not going away. But I also think there's an intention in, in Spielberg showing the murder of the Israeli hostages, which was so random, like you just see. It's like when Black September terrorists realize that it's all going down, they just sort of fire wildly at the guys. And it's not that different from what you've seen Bon and his crew do. No. Yeah. Which no. is kind of just fire wildly at people when they think they got you know like yeah um it's and then and then there's the the factual final scene is his conversation with jeffrey with Ephraim yeah uh on the docks of he's Brooklyn, really good in this uh yeah. which which has that very intentional uh shot of the, the world trade center yeah. final shot has the world trade center in the skyline yeah i do love that's the thing i i love about this where Ephraim is like come back to israel we'll kill more people <laughs> and eric bond is like stuff. why did we do this yeah. did it work and he's like yeah, yeah i think not? so yeah, sure. Always more people to kill, though. Flip a coin. But I mean, it's, I mean, I'm making it sound silly. It is, it's, it's an, a scene where both characters have staked out their sort of, sort of philosophical territory on this. And, and the movie ends in a note where it's like these two guys are going to walk in two different directions and shit's going to keep happening. Like, there's no, you know, was it a success? Like, in the immediate, they accomplished the thing they were trying to do. But, like, it, you know, nothing's resolved really in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh I I do I love how and this is like because it's like a sixty million dollar Spielberg movie and he could do whatever he wants mm-hmm. in terms of like the period setting was their budget seventy wow mm-hmm. in terms of the period setting and how many different locations this film has the world of this movie is so huge because he does a lot of wide shots he does yeah. a lot of long tracking shots where you're going across city blocks and the degree to which they had to set dress like every car every outfit all the signage and everything. Mm-hmm. He makes the world feel very just sort of lived in and offhand. That's the thing in this movie that kind of reminds me of the conversation is a lot of times he uses more sort of like documentary film techniques. He does a lot of zooms in this, which Spielberg doesn't usually do. Mm. He usually moves the camera, yeah. not shifts the lens, right. you know? And he does a lot of like quick zooms into people from a distance, this sort of paranoid kind of bird's eye view or, or like a you know bird's nest view of, characters talking mm-hmm. it's like an uneasy movie i think it's great i think it's really good i don't think it's great but i really really like oh it. you don't think it's great i think it's great this would be it's, my top 10 of the year for sure it's top five spielberg for me uh i do think there's something though to what you were saying about it like the spider-man 3 comparison where when audiences have a very specific idea of what they want out of a movie yeah and it doesn't work for them they always latch on to like the thumb sticking out the furthest you know yeah. sure 
where it's like, I think the weird scene in Spider-Man 3, the, the, the dance shit, all those weird scenes aren't the problem with Spider-Man 3. No. It's the rest of it. Yeah. That stuff's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's... he's taking bold swings there. Interesting is too strong. I think, you guys I think like that, that movie more than I do. I think the basic functional Spider-Man stuff in Spider-Man 3 is totally dysfunctional is where that movie it's falls all, apart. It's kind of all over the place. And I think similarly, like most of Munich is so kind of locked down and focused that people who I think were looking for the film to give them any sort of emotional catharsis or the sort of rush of an action thriller or the kind of neat answers that they wanted out of like a, a movie on a hot button issue were able to, especially because it's the end, go, well, that scene was weird. That's the fucking problem. Yeah. And pin way too much on the sex scene yeah. because it's it's the loudest thing in the movie. I think of his 2000s work, though, this and AI have sort of grown the most mm-hmm. in reputation over time. Yeah. Uh, I think that a big part of why this movie kind of rubbed people the wrong way was when it came out. Like, yeah. 2005, certainly we were starting to explore the moral questions of what the United States did after September 11th, but we weren't, like, all the way there yet. Right. And a lot of the reviews, I went back and looked at them, a lot of the commentary was saying, is this movie saying taking action against terrorists makes you a terrorist? Because that's wrong. Yeah, they're, like, yeah, yeah, right. That's We've... not what this movie's saying at all, but, like, that's an easy, superficial reading. of it. It's, it's kind of similar to what happened to Zero Dark Thirty in a lot of ways. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yes. Very, very, very similar. Um, Another good movie. And, and some of the... It's also very long. <laughs> yes. Uh, some of the same sort of, like, themes that come up in Minority Report, where yeah. it's like, look, it's like two, two wrong answers, really. Yeah. You have to choose which wrong you want to go with. Right. Yeah. You know, either you invade people's privacies in order to stop crime, mm-hmm. or you give people freedom and you let more crime happen. This movie is ranked 29th in the box office mojo category of Travelogue Middle East. You know what number one is? Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. Yeah. That's <laughs> maybe a great Middle Eastern travelogue. It's going to take another sweep of that category. You know, what num- you know what number two is? The Passion of the Christ. Jesus, what the fuck? <laughs> oh, I knocked over a little bit of tea. Thank you. Great job. Um, I love obscure box office mojo. The, every movie is American Sniper, Aladdin. <laughs> Jeez. Why would you call this travel? Anyway, uh, that is my way of setting up the box office. Yes. Table. Okay. Great. Yay. So this, this opened in like Christmas. It, it opened, was Christmas. it Christmas weekend, twenty third of December, two thousand and five. It opened at number ten at the box office with six million dollars. So it's not in our top five. It opened five hundred and thirty screens. So like sort of semi limited. I think. Right. It, it expanded out, but you know, it, it ended with forty seven yeah. domestic. It didn't really 130 worldwide. pop you know. anymore. I feel like its first wide weekend, it did the same amount, right? Uh, let's see. Yeah, uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I never. Its biggest weekend is seven million dollars. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know? So this is Christmas 2005. Christmas 2005, number one. It's in its second week of release. Okay. Uh, Todd loved this movie at the time. I remember. I did, I I rewatched it last year, and, and it's still really, still really like it. I wouldn't I th- love to say I love it anymore. I think I might side with you on this. I haven't rewatched it in a while, but I certainly. So everyone knows what the movie is. Bang the drum highly for King Kong, right? It's yeah. King Kong, which a film I, I don't like. Okay, I was yeah. fully in the masterpiece boat at the time of its release. It's uh, it's overstuffed, but the stuff that works is so good. I, I think it's incredible. Yeah. I also would have given Naomi Watts best actress. She's right here. I I think she's terrific. In I the think film. that's an incredible. One day we'll do our Peter Jackson yeah. miniseries. We'll do it, and, we'll, and then I'll rewatch King Kong. I can't wait. Um, but that uh that holiday season was an arms race. King Kong was expected to be the movie of yep. the year, not made, just at the it fall. It made plenty of money. It made but, yeah. two eighteen. But another film sort of lapped it. I mean, came on strong. Yeah. 
uh, and I think the weekend after this weekend r- returned to number one after seeding to King Kong for a couple weeks, and that is you are correct. The Chronicles of Narnia: The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's right. Which ended up being the bigger sort of fantasy family event yeah. film. Of Remember the fall. when the director of Shrek made a Narnia movie with Tilda yeah. Swinton that was a huge hit? Do you remember when the director of Shrek had the most consistent box office track record of anyone in history? Yeah, because Shrek, Shrek 2, Narnia is 1 and 2. Right. And then Mr. Pip. Yep. Okay. So Never that, heard of this movie. So that's 1 and 2. And he also did it. <laughs> Mr. A, Pip made $1,700 at the box office. He also, did a, he also did a Cirque du Soleil documentary, I he think. He did, he did. Okay, so that's King Kong and Chronicles of Narnia 1 and 2, right? That's 1 and 2, correct. Okay. Number 3. Number three is a comedy that actually opened pretty good. It opened $29 million. This is its first weekend, considering that no one has ever seen it. I know what this is. And it doesn't exist. Fun with Dick and Jane? That's correct. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> you guys both are. You touch, My play the box wife worked week. in a movie theater at this time, so mm. I remember okay. every, because I was there visiting her all the time and seeing free movies, so I remember, like, everything. Yeah, that's, that's one of the quietest 100 million grocers ever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the movie made $110 million, uh, 202 worldwide. It was co-written by Judd Apatow and Nick Stoller. Yeah, and Dean Parasaw directed it. Yeah, starred Jim Carrey. It was ostensibly, also it was 2005 and it's kind of a movie about like. Financial blue, Yeah, white collar crime. It was like yeah. weirdly prescient. Too bad no one's ever seen it and I haven't seen it and it doesn't exist. <laughs> I saw it, I saw it in theaters. It, it doesn't really exist. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, isn't the button joke on that one, the final joke is that he's finally, he got a new job and he'll be fine and the job's at Enron? Yes. It yeah. turns out to be a period piece. That's the big twist. Okay. Go, fuck. Just like Remember Me. Yeah. It's yes. just like Remember it's Me. It's very right. similar It turns out me. that an early aughts crisis is is, uh, is the uh, twist ending of the movie. Now, yes. number four is a sequel. Much like uh, Ghost of the Abyss. Much like Ghost of the Abyss. Yeah. Number, yeah. I had to make that joke. I'm yeah, sorry. Of course. Uh, n- number four is a sequel. Okay. Uh, to a family film. Cheaper by the dozen, too. There you go. <laughs> Open to $20 million tw- for Cheaper by the dozen, too. Yeah. Is Tom Welling in that one as well? Yeah. Hilary Duff? I yeah. believe so, yeah. Piper Paraba? Piper. They're all back? They're all back. The whole family's back. Plus a new family, Eugene Levy and Carmen Electra. That couple. <laughs> that couple. There's some episode back in the archives where we rent on like a 20 minute Eugene Levy rant. I yeah. can't remember which. One. What Jim's dad? We talked about Jim's dad. We talked about Eugene Levy's uh, mid 2000s dominance of the sex comedy genre. Uh, Cheaper by the Dozen Two uh, features Taylor Lautner playing the child of Carmen Electra and Eugene Levy, the biological <laughs> child of Carmen Electra and Eugene Levy. Oh God! So live with that, America. Um. Yeah. And then number five is a film that uh, just added, it, it, it was limited last week. It just added 1,500 screens and uh, made $10 million. Was it an Oscar player? It's an Oscar player that won some Oscars. Brokeback? But, nope, but did not, uh, was not good and did not get good reviews. But Siriana? No. Good, good guess. Right? <laughs> good that guess. fits the description pretty well. Siriana was that year people were like, oh, no, this will be a player. Siriana, yeah. watch out for Siriana. That was Siriana. also an Ebert favorite. Seriana. That is a movie that I saw. I don't remember it at all, but like I saw that Thanksgiving weird... night, two thousand five, with and... my wife. We drove to LA to see Siriana to sell <laughs> dollar. Ate at a KFC. <laughs> and you lived in Nevada yeah. at the time. <laughs> you drove through the night to yeah. see Siriana. And what did you think of Siriana? I don't remember a goddamn thing what about it. What the fuck it. is I, that movie even the about? The only thing I remember is the gif of of George Clooney walking away 
from the car that blows up, which right, you sometimes yeah, right, see. Right. Yeah. There's he dies, right? There's this scene where he's, he's like in a Humvee and he's like, no, 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 don't do it. Then they all blow up. And I don't remember why. He won an Oscar for it's it. So he won weird an that Academy he won for Award. That. I mean, a, it it's was, his only Oscar. It was his year because that was like Good Night and Good Luck. And then he got like nominated in like five different categories. But I mean, before the movie came out, it was like, oh, he grew a beard and he a gained weight. That's triptych with him, Matt Damon, and Jeffrey Wright. Yeah. You, I, I could point a gun at Stephen Gagan, who I believe wrote and directed that film. Correct. He couldn't tell me what the Jeffrey Wright arc was about. I mean, I, it's so weird. I have a theory that 75% of the people who voted for George Clooney didn't see Syria. They were just like, yeah, sure. Was it's he, Clooney's he was bad year. or something? Great. Yeah, it's yeah. Clooney's year. Anyway, no, it's not Syriana. Okay. It's not Brokeback. <laughs> it won a couple Oscars. I think it won three. Uh, Last King of Scotland? No, that was the year later. Um, okay. Wait, that year... Uh, walk the line. Uh, uh, give me another hand. No, it's bad. It's a bad movie. It's a bad movie, and it won a couple Oscars. I think it won three. Do you know the movie, Tom? I'm not. I'm not placing it. No. Look, it's crazy that this movie exists. It was criticized at the time for. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Now. I know what you're talking about. Memoirs now. of a Geisha. Yeah. Correct. Memoirs of a Geisha. A yeah. Rob Marshall joint. This was yeah. thought to be an Oscar front runner. Yeah. And I think it was the Hollywood was like. What should we give to Rob Marshall? You know, he made Chicago. We should give him something kind of musically, right? I don't know. You know, like really complex period drama yeah. set in it's is it that it's set in China and featured Japanese actors or the other way around? Like it was it had this problem where it cast it was set like, in Japan and featured Chinese. Right, it cast like Korean. Quote, it was Asian everyone but actors, Japan. Right? Yeah, it was it was a catch-all uh Asian actor pool for a very Japanese movie. Yeah, because they were like, let's just, what? I mean, Watanabe, get him on the phone. Zhang Zhi, like, get him yeah. on, get him Gong in, right? Li. Right, Kong Lee's in it. Yeah. Uh, I think Michelle Yeoh's in it. Am I wrong about that? I feel like she has a supporting part. I haven't seen it since it came uh, out. Yes, you're correct. Yeah. Um, but I believe it won, yeah, it won three Oscars cinematography, art, well, my girl Colleen Atwood won for costumes. And costumes. Yeah. yeah. Um, that uh, also is a movie that Spielberg was going to make for years. Yes, yeah. He bought the rights. He had it set up at DreamWorks. Yeah, he was, was always going to make that it. That was a hot uh, book club yeah. franchise. And, and that was another thing when people were doing the Oscar prognosticating months out. I remember oh, people yeah. being oh, like, yeah. oh, memoirs. it's going to be memoirs versus Munich. It's going to be, it, oh, the irony. If Steve got beaten by the movie that he almost directed and finally handed off to Rob Marshall, our next great American <laughs> director. Are newly anointed. So, some other movies. Man, good job, guys. Uh, Family Stone is in there, which is a film that people now claim is good, which I hate because it's bad. It's got some moments. No. <laughs> moments, though. Todd. I, I like Family Stone. Ugh. Hey, Todd. Terrible movie. It definitely has some moments. Remember that scene where, I don't even want to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> the Ringer. Rachel McCam's line. The Ringer. Imagine that movie coming out today. Yeah, people would. <laughs> <laughs> Not like it. <laughs> I mean, people didn't like it then, but uh, imagine that now. Yeah, and I think I've never seen it, but I think it sort of criticizes Johnny Knoxville for pretending to be like mentally disabled or so whatever he can the hell it is. In the Special he's Olympics. Yeah. But uh, uh, rumor has it everybody fucked Costner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was the working title for that movie. I think that's a Nathan Rabin joke that I dug up from my the recesses of my brain. Uh, Goblet of Fire is yeah. in there. Okay. The worst Harry Potter movie. I would agree. At least, I mean, if you're giving Chris Columbus's movie kind of like you're just sort of ignoring them, I guess. Oh, I keeping them in mind still think that's the worst one. Then Munich, uh, Wolf Creek. Remember Wolf Creek? Oh, jeez. Syriana, The Producers. Lots and lots of movies in 05 that were going to be Oscar players didn't. That's the, yeah. that's yeah, the thing. That, 
movies like The Producer. That's movies fascinating because like you could have gone like if you asked. I'm sure if you trekked through those boards, right, and found like the August predictions, they would have yeah. been like Best Picture, Producers, Memoirs yeah. of a Geisha, Syriana, Munich's gonna win in a sweep. Right. Yeah. Mrs. Henderson presents. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Remember when she presented a nude yeah. review? <laughs> Transamerica's probably in there somewhere. Transamerica. Oh, jeez, Transamerica. Another movie, like, release that today. <laughs> oh, sure. Let's see how that goes. <laughs> Whew. Uh, the IMAX reissue of the Polar Express. Yeah, that was good, that period of time where Polar cinema. Express would make another 10 to $15 million every year. <laughs> yeah. They just bring it back. Yes. Dock uh, into the station. All right, and... so, but that's it. That's it. Well, much like. The film Munich, we're left with a lot of questions and, in general, uh, unease. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Todd. I was glad to be here. Uh, people can follow you on Twitter. Yeah, Twitter. Twitter's a TVOTI. You can find my work at Vox.com uh, or, you know, just follow me on Twitter. I like to do it. Do it. Tivoti. Tivoti. Yeah. Do you ever regret it being Tivoti? Because I feel like Tivoti now, you've just made that your brand. I, d- I don't because Todd Vanderwerf is such a long, stupid name. People wouldn't know how to spell it. T-V-O-T-I. That's easy. It's easy to remember. That's pretty good. T-V-O-T-I. There's a guy who's T-V-O-T who gets a lot of tweets from me, and mm-hmm. he just tirelessly is like, I think you mean T-V-O-T-I. <laughs> He's from, like, England or something. So. Why do they? Why not just do something else? <laughs> God. There's this. My, you know, I'm David L. Sims on right. Twitter. But plug for me. You know, there's a David Sims. Yeah. And like in his he's he tweets never. Yeah. And in his profile it says, I'm not the TV reviewer or the fashion photographer, because also a fashion photographer right. by my name. This poor guy's probably just getting tagged like once every few hours, like with some you know, great job shooting Miley Cyrus in you know, this week's interview magazine. There's a dude who who's also named Griffin Newman who lives in New York and works for like Swiss banking. <laughs> works for like Credit Suisse. And I they think. loved him in the tick? Uh, every once in a while, he'll send me something. He'll be like, hey, I think this uh, offer to star in a web video is for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Anyway, good times. Thank you, Todd. You're welcome. God, how long have we known each other, Todd? 15 years? Yeah, probably. It's, it's It's been since like 2002, 2003. Since that Chicago Oscar race. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And you were, like a, you were like a, a, a tiny baby. I was. Time. I was a tiny upstart baby who and just I got was, a computer in his room. I was still married. <laughs> Well, congratulations. Well, thank you. To you and Livy. You're still married today. Yeah. Um, um, and, uh, uh, congratulations and have, to all I've of us. I've grown into a, a, a big baby. Yeah, and I'm a little too big, if you ask me. Yeah, pretty yeah, big. A very tall man. Um, that's a throwback. Very tall man. Um, anyway, uh, thank you for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spielberg does another one of his classics, you know, three and two, and then takes a couple years off. And next week we'll be discussing uh, his, right? It is his immediate follow-up to this, is a film called Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I think is the first film in an aborted Indiana Jones franchise. (laughs) We're not doing that. (laughs) That I love that movie. You love that movie? Not really. (laughs) I mean, I I like parts of it. I think there's some good parts. I think that's a movie that also falls prey to the Spider-Man 3 problem. People focus on the wrong things. They do. Uh, But we'll talk about that next week. That's right. Um, but in the meantime, uh, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm. And as always, a big congratulations to Steven Spielberg for losing his weekend. <laughs> this has been a UCB Comedy production. Check out our other shows on the UCB Comedy Podcast Network. 